0: Hey, folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, co-host of the show. We have a really interesting guest for you today. She's written for The New York Times Magazine, Harper's The New York Times Book Review, and Oxford American. She's a writer, critic, and occasional speaker. Our guest today is Maud Newton, and check this out. Her brand new book, Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and a Reconciliation, has been praised by New York Times Book Review, Boston Globe, Oprah Daily, NPR, New York Times, Vanity Fair, Vulture, Los Angeles Times, Wired, and on and on the list goes. Excerpts from the book have appeared in Esquire, Time, and the Wall Street Journal. So we have a really interesting conversation today about ancestry, genealogy, intergenerational trauma, psychoanalytic and spiritual traditions, and how all of these things come into play to form who we are. I know you're going to love Maud and what she has to bring today. So happy that you're here, folks. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now here's the host of our show, Ian Cron. Maud Newton, author of the wonderful
1: new book, Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and a Reconciliation that dropped on March 29th of this year. Welcome to Typology.
2: Thank you. I'm really excited to be here with you both.
1: Well, we are really excited to have you because, like us, you are a self-preservation four.
2: I am indeed a self-preservation four. I knew I was probably a four, but until I started listening to your show... I didn't, I wasn't certain. And then the way you described how a self-preservation for can kind of turn um, comparison and envy back on themselves as a form of self-criticism, you know, that really cleared it up for me because that's, that's habitual on my yeah,
1: own. So it- It is. All of these patterns are predictable and habitual with uh, different types. And uh, so I'm glad to hear you say it. Now, you were introduced to it by your stepdaughter, if I'm not wrong.
2: I was. Yeah, she was in her early 20s. She is also a four. Um, And, you know, we have always bonded. She's been in my life since she was two. So, I'm, I'm very lucky to have played a part in the role, or rather a role in the life of this amazing human and, you know, um, not had the primary responsibility for raising her. But yeah, so we together started, started diving into the Enneagram. And yeah, I just found it really fascinating. And I, you know, I relate to, and maybe this is also a four trait, I relate to a lot of the other types actually so particularly the hyper vigilance and anxiety of the six Mm. Mm. really you know very very strong um in me and so that was part of the reason that i had some question initially um, about my type you know i i also um relate a lot to the five it's probably my wing little bit to the three, you know, really pretty much every type, um, except maybe the nine, uh, which is, you know, so, so flexible, um, and, and that I may come off as flexible, but I'm in certain ways, I'm not really,
1: well, you know, the Enneagram, one of the ways I describe it to people is you think about it as uh, a nine room house, Right. And you probably know this. I, I recently bought a home in, in our in another home in Nashville. When I bought it, within a day or two, there was one room in that house that I gravitated toward and and, and nested in. Right? It's like, I, I, and I don't. I can't, I can't even explain it. So every morning now, when I go downstairs, I get my coffee. I you know, and I go into that room. Ninety nine percent of the time, I am in that room. Uh, in the house right and that there my books are piled there and all my work and my papers and everything else so what i tell people is if you were a house you do contain all nine rooms mm. right but there's one room that you gravitate toward more than any of the others right cuz in my house i got a i got a living room i don't go in ever <laughs> you know and maybe your living room is the nine room But you just rarely go into the nine room, right? But you got a six room that you spend a lot of time in too, you know? But that four room is the one where you camp out in there more than any other room in the house.
2: That makes so much sense. I love that metaphor. And yeah, I mean, I think the sort of four insistence on individualism, really really resonates for me and the way that you've talked about it um, in the episodes of the show i've listened to and in your book um, it's it's really kind of comical you know in a in a sort of wonderful heart way to to see you know that that this is actually very common and i think that for fours you know there's this sense that we're We're alone in sort of good ways and bad. You know, we're very unique in our creativity and aloneness. So it's it's just really, really interesting to see this commonality and really come to understand it more deeply.
1: Well, you know, it's what's interesting to me about the new book. And again, for those listening, the name of the book is "Ancestor Trouble: A Reckoning and a Reconciliation." What fascinates, first of all, I think it's a very four project. Okay, and and the the reason I would say that it is, it's quite unique, right? Um, And then, uh, secondly, you know, we talk about the time orientation of different types. So, ones, twos, and sixes are all present-oriented people, and threes, sevens, and eights are very future-oriented people, and fours, fives, and nines are very past-oriented people. We're, we're always thinking about the past. We're, we're always thinking about where did I come from? And, you know, where did this missing, where, how did I come, this, come here on the earth with this missing piece? Is there some hidden trauma or tragedy in the past that's unnameable? That haunts me, and where does it? So when I saw the name of the book, and I, you know, I just was like, oh my gosh, this really is a four.
0: <laughs> and Maude, Maude was, for those of you not watching, Maude was shaking her head. The whole he <laughs> was talking. What what was resonating with you there, Maude?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, actually, the more I thought about the book through the lens of the Enneagram, the more I I found myself almost laughing as I thought about some of the sections of it that are just so four. And, (laughs) you know, I mean, there are just so many, I'm I'm kind of at a loss to, to point to one. But, you know, one example is when I talk about how, you know, on my mother's side, there was this impulse toward larger than life stories. And so there wasn't really shame so much around um, difficult histories and that sort of thing. The the greatest sin was to be boring. Um, And so, (laughs) (laughs) and I say in the book that as far as I can tell, that wasn't a problem anywhere (laughs) along my mother's line. You know, her father was supposedly married 13 times. I found a mere 10 marriages to nine women um, in my research. You know, and my grandmother was definitely a six. She was very kind of, very present focused, very kind of fear motivated, but delightful, wonderful. Um, And then, yeah, and then my mom, I think was a three dad, an eight, you know, anyway. So I've really enjoyed as I've returned to the Enneagram, sort of thinking about my whole family uh, in terms of the system.
1: Mm. Wow. All right. So give our, our listeners a 50,000 foot flyby um, of just giving us a precis of, of the book. What, what inspired you to write it? What it's about? And, and then we're going to dive a little bit more into some of the things you just mentioned.
2: I've always been really interested um, in sort of sort of repetitions in my family. Uh, when I was young, my grandmother, my beloved maternal grandmother, warned me to be alert for signs of mental illness in myself. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was a sort of heavy thing to bear, and it jibed with some of what I had already seen. Um, And then as I got older, I really started thinking about some of these stories, you know, this grandfather who had supposedly married all these times, Um, you know, and then on my father's side, this heavier, um, even heavier burden of, you know, my ancestors having enslaved people, uh, black people. And, you know, my father was, really, I would say jubilantly racist. You know, it wasn't a kind of subtle thing. It was very much part of the fabric of my upbringing. Um, And so that was something that I was always, you know, really trying to reckon with in a a way that seemed odd to other people. And so, you know, as I got older and I started really, um, you know, I should say my mother also started a church in our living room when I was a kid. It was like a holy roller casting out demons church. Father, very not on board with that. And so, you know, as I say at the end of the introduction, um, you know, when I was young, I really saw... Um, my parents failed marriage and my sort of originating there as this predic- predicament that was unique to me. Mm-hmm. You know, because I've grown older and I've had all these years of therapy and you know um, I've just really come to see its ubiquity. You know, we're, we're all sort of trying to figure out, okay, I come from these people. But I'm me, you know, and, and what does that mean about who I am and how I wanna show up in the world? And so, you know, but also I think part of the the process of becoming an adult and certainly an adult who's a four is realizing that your parents also came you know, from a very specific set of circumstances, that, you know, led to them becoming how they were. And so it just sort of kept going backward. You know, I, I would think, well, you know, my mom became like this because of these, you know, my grandfather and my grandmother, how did they become how they were? And so I, you know, I really wanted to take this flyby, um, you know, of, of the whole family. But then, you know, the, the further I sort of delved into it, you know, inevitably um, being me, you know, probably with a five wing, I had to sort of look at the science behind um, genealogical research. I wanted to look at um, you know, psychology and Jung and ideas about the importance of ancestors for us and sort of their unresolved traumas and things that we've inherited in one way or another. And I looked at, you know, ideas about intergenerational trauma, you know, and, and spirituality and creativity. So it, it became this hybrid book that you know is very very personal but also really dives deep into research on all these subjects Mm.
1: you know the what i'm picking up and i you can please comment uh, one of the things i'm picking up that what from you is that this was a healing experience
2: yes absolutely it was um and you know when i was younger I really um, wrote from a much more cynical place and a a desire to show ugliness, I would say. Mm. desire to reveal um, hidden ugliness. Mm. And, you know, as I've grown older and I've, you know, again, the years of therapy and the meditating and the sort of seeing, you know, how much pain so much of us are so many of us are are you know reckoning with all the time and sort of enthralled to in ways that we're not fully aware of or that we don't know how to extricate ourselves from. Um, I really have found that you know I wanted to write a book that would be of service. Um, and I, I felt that I was you know fairly far along on my journey. But as I'm sure you know as you know, as someone who also writes books that are intended to be of service, I've, I found there was a lot left to to deal with and reckon with, and, you know, a lot of healing that still needed to take place, and, and I think will continue, you know, as long as I'm in this form on the planet.
1: So beautifully put, I I do feel like uh, you know, the older I get and I try to figure out well, what the hell is I doing here? What the hell am I doing here? <laughs> you know, and and I think sometimes the way I would put it is that I've spent a lot of my life looking pain in the eye and trying to make sense of it and trying to make it something better. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I've done and tried to help people have a level, and this is such a hackney overused word now, but you know an experience of self-compassion, of, of grace uh, toward themselves and mercy, because life is so damn complicated. It's just so complicated. And our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents, you know, gosh. You know, there's a song, and if you haven't heard it, I almost want to make you stop and listen to it right now. Uh, it's by Mark Cohen. It's called The Things We've Handed Down. Do you know that song?
2: I don't, but I'm, I'm going to write it down so that okay. I... Okay.
1: Okay. Well, you're welcome. Because <laughs> the, the, the last... Anthony, you know that song, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. We're from Nashville, so we are all about the songs. Okay? So the last verse of it goes, You may not always be so grateful for the way that you were made, Some feature of your father's that you'd gladly sell or trade. And one day you may look at us and say that you were cursed. But over time, that line has been extremely well rehearsed by our fathers and their fathers in some old and distant town. From places no one here remembers come the things we've handed down. (laughs) (laughs) That is great writing. It really is. So resonates for me. So anyway, everyone who's listening, especially you fours, you will listen to it repeatedly. It's called The Things We've Handed Down by Mark Cohn. And so I do. I I think this is a very four adventure. But you see, this is the thing about fours. Number one, as as many of our listeners know, our, our superpower is empathy. And so part of what I'm hearing you is like you. this well of empathy came up for you. And I do think that fours, particularly young fours, can be rather cynical, particularly with a five wing, particularly with a five wing. Um, they tend to want to stare down into the abyss. So if, you know, if you look at the bottom of the Enneagram, the biggest gap between numbers is between the four and the five. And they're at the very bottom of the Enneagram. And so, you have this big chasm, and we call it the abyss, because fours and fives kind of look over into it sometimes, you know. And they can be, as young people, fours can be sort of very fascinated with a romantic view of death, you know, and fives can sort of fall into this kind of Nietzschean kind of worldview, and... You know, if they take it too far, it doesn't end well for fours and fives. You know, it, it's that they're always kind of peering over into the darkness a little bit more than any other types.
2: Yeah, I mean, so I think my husband is a five with a four wing.
0: Um, mm.
2: And he agrees based on his his limited exposure. And so there is this kind of peering back and forth that that happens for us, I think, and. Um, you know, he was never quite so cynical in the, in the ways that I was as a young person, but yeah. um, I'm really glad that I was able to move beyond that because
1: Mm.
2: it's just a very painful way to live. And I think, you know, I, I relate, you know, I've, I've listened to a number of episodes and, and also read, you know, your books. And so I know one background and, yeah, and I really relate to um, some of what you described about your family and and your struggles, sort of coming out of that, and um, and your mom kind of being this eight figure. Um, and mm. you know, I, I really was not given any tools for understanding or acknowledging fear um, or sadness. You know, mm. both of my really saw those as deeply weak Mm. and so yeah so it took me a really long time to answer the question from my therapist how do you feel without the sentence i think Mm. um which is a very five you know uh, you know five wing in my case way of you know of answering and so it's taken me a really long time to integrate you know those deep four feelings with that tendency to rationalize
1: now you said your mom was what type was she one of them was an eight right
2: yes my father without question was an eight (laughs) very authoritarian figure very terrifying as a young child Mm -hmm. um and yeah, my mom is a little harder. I, I believe she's a three. Um, she's very future focused, very, you know, um, definitely one of those people who's been eagerly awaiting the rapture since I was seven and <laughs> <in> anything. <laughs> any no. moment. I'm not saying that there won't be a rapture, but we might not want to spend our lives, um, you know, sort of expecting it to happen tomorrow. Um, And, you know, she's a very, very charismatic person, Um, amazing storyteller, Uh, very fear-driven though. You know, I definitely see some six in her as well. Um, Definitely preparing for the apocalypse, You know, I, one of the last times I visited, I was like, mom, why do you have seven old uh, microwaves in your garage? And she said, oh, those are, those are Faraday cages, you know? So then I had to go research. This is like, if there's a nuclear war, you put your electronics in there so they're not destroyed. So, you know, yeah. So she's, she's a a tricky one, but, you know, I think she's a three. Uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah. So and The reason I'm asking is, I was just trying to think about uh, with fours, I'm like, oh, what type of your parents? Because, you know, fours growing up often feel definitely like the odd person out in their family. Like, there is something like, did I come here? Was I like adopted from Martians? Like, what am I doing here? These people are, cr- they, I have nothing in common with these people. And they have no understanding of how I see the world, or they they don't understand my interests. They don't understand the things that move me. And that's particularly, probably more than any other type, true for fours, because fours feel misunderstood in the womb. They feel misunderstood, Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, when you have an eight father... It'd be very hard for him to understand a four, really hard. And if you had a three mother, you would be really frustrating to her, right? Because yes. uh, she she What's would be
2: that statement. No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well. I mean, because she is confused about her feelings. She has trouble recognizing them. She has trouble articulating them. Whereas you would have a much richer, although you mentioned this very strong five-wing, a much richer uh, sort of uh, feeling vocabulary, you know, like like just the ability, like in multiple colors, you know. I'm sure, were you a bookish child?
2: I was. She is also somewhat bookish. So I was fortunate that she didn't really put restraints on that. But, you mm-hmm. know, one, one thing that that I write about in the book is so there was a point in the 80s when a certain kind of evangelical Christian became really obsessed with the four humors. And, um, you know, Tim LeHay, who later became known for the Left Behind books, he wrote a book about this. And so it was actually a really formative influence um, on, on me uh, via my mom. Um, and she really enjoys dividing people up into sort of their humors. And so without question, I was the melancholy humor, which is her least favorite type.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes explaining the therapy yes continue
2: you would always tell me to quit melling um you know that wow. always-
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god quit, quit I- melling
2: to ruminate and be-, be sad and you know all those colors you were talking about So. <sighs> Frustrating to her, you know, so, so very frustrating. Yeah.
0: milling about.
2: Yes. Yes, absolutely.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. Now let's get right down to it here. You found out that you have a witch in your background.
2: Yes. I have an accused witch in my background. Her name is Mary Parsons. <laughs> uh, and I had no idea about this. I started researching my mom's mother's line um her father had supposedly been a communist in texas and i was like come on now you know (laughs) know, a card carrying socialist so (laughs) in
1: texas in what year was this
2: like 1907. Wow. <laughs> Apparently, a movement. Um, even in Texas, there was this sort of movement um, around that time. But yeah, I just thought, oh, you know, my mom, sh- her stories are so larger than life, but they usually turn out to be true or truth adjacent. And so, case of zone my great great grandfather turned out to be a truth adjacent and maybe he did consider himself a communist but in any case at that point i couldn't find anything about him so i typed his uh my great grandmother's name in his wife's name and up came this tree going back to northampton massachusetts which was a surprise because my sister had moved there a few years before with her partner, not knowing of any connection to the place. So I started, you know, digging into, um, that and, and, very quickly I discovered that Mary Parsons, um, is known as the accused witch of Northampton. And she, um, She was essentially, so there were two court cases. Uh, The first one was brought by her husband as a sort of gambit to shut down the rumors. It was a slander trial and they won. Later she was tried criminally. Her body was searched for witch marks and it was pretty intense. Um, She beat the charges. So this was some, some bit of time before the Salem witch trials. So I was pretty excited about this, you know, Um, and there were some stories about her um, and her sort of sense of communicating with spirits. She denied being a witch, but, you know, she, you know, there were these stories and it, it fascinated me because of my mother's later obsession with spirits and speaking in tongues and, and all of that. Um, you know, so I saw this as a really fascinating um, and kind of unmitigated good. Like, how awesome! I'm descended from this woman. <laughs> Charges, you know, that's pretty badass. Um, and then, you know, as I researched the family a bit more, um, I discovered that like many parts of my family, they were deeply involved in colonialism, in pushing out the indigenous people of the area. My great, my ninth great grandfather, her husband, actually learned the language um, and was really involved in, you know, cheating people out of their land and, you know, leading military actions. And then there was also, um, you know, when toward the end of Mary's life, rumors surfaced again that she was a witch. Um, her family chose to make an example of the black woman who, who, who said this to her grandson? She she told the grandson allegedly, "Your um your mother your grandmother is a witch, and your mother is half a witch." And so, when I wrote the book, I, I believed that the woman was enslaved. But I've I've since learned it's a little unclear uh, whether she was enslaved. But in any case, the family um, sentenced her to lashes, public lashes. Mm. And so, you know, I realized through that research, you know, that it's really important, I think for us in this moment, you know, as individuals and as a country to hold in our hearts, the idea that someone can be a victim and someone can also do enormous harm. Mm. And sometimes those two things Um, are more related than we think, you know, when we carry our trauma forward, when we haven't untangled it, when we're trying to avoid these toxic patterns without getting at the root of them, we're more likely to bring more toxicity into the world.
1: That's interesting, because uh, like you, I have an interest in epigenetics as a therapist, uh, I have an interest in intergenerational trauma. Um, and, you know, I think back to the studies about uh, the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors and, you know, what did you learn about intergenerational trauma? And and because it is a little bit of a contested, you know, um, term uh, in, in different schools of psychology. Where did you land on it? Um, and maybe even take a moment to explain it to people who may not know what it is.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with that five wing, I really wanted to get in there and to the best of my ability as a layperson, understand the science. And so um, the idea with intergenerational trauma, as it's often discussed now, is that, um, you know, we, so our genes can, can be expressed in different ways, right? And so, as we move through the world, as we eat things, as we en- encounter traumas in our own lives, as we as positive things happen, as we exercise more, we know that we have the ability to affect the expression of our genes, um, and that the environment has that ability, and that's that's not within question. Um, know the ways that it happens sort of contentious but um the question is you know if my genes change or your genes change you know can we pass that along um biologically and so you know you mentioned the holocaust study and this is a study probably a lot of your listeners are aware of it Um, You know, the researchers have actually followed, I believe, a few different groups, Um, you know, and what they have found is that descendants of Holocaust survivors are more likely to have a spectrum of anxiety disorders and other mental health issues. Uh, It's contentious because there's not really a control group. Um, you know, the, the sample size is small uh, and, it, and it's hard, you know, because of the human lifespan, you know, and because we're only now becoming aware of these questions in this way um, to, to really have a study that satisfies the demands of science. You know, at the same time, um, you know, researchers have, you know, there was a, a famous study involving mice. And this is also a somewhat contentious study, but the researchers exposed the mice to the smell of cherry blossoms. They shocked them. Um, the mice became terrified of this smell and, you know, it was passed down, um, to the grandchildren who had no reason to fear the smell. Uh, You know, they they reacted in the same way as their grandparents did. And so there have been a lot of studies and, you know, essentially, I think, you know, hard scientists, geneticists, um, as a rule, say there's no evidence that this can occur in humans, that that these epigenetic changes can be passed down. And also, if they are passed down, it's more a a mechanical thing um, because of the sperm or the egg sort of being in the body, you know, of the parent long before the child is born. you know, these these sorts of debates. Um, you know, I'm really, I'm a little bit getting into the weeds here, but so, um, but at the same time, you know, there is this awareness. I mean, it has been shown that earthworms, for example, um, you know, that epi- epigenetic changes, obviously not involving intergenerational trauma, but, you know, involving changes to gene expression can be passed down for nine generations. Mm. So, you know, my, I acknowledge the science, and I acknowledge that the science does not conclusively prove anything um, about um, the possibility that trauma might be passed down through generations. At the same time, I, while respecting science, I do think that our insistence on human exceptionalism is a little problematic. Um, and I tend to believe like many people that this is a real thing, you know, that in families, the way that these traits repeat, the way that these tendencies come up, um, there's something about it that, you know, that just can't really be explained by sort of, you know, the, the tools that we have now. Um, and I do tend to believe that, That there is something. Um, Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. You know, you're just making me think, and I don't want to go too far down this wormhole because you and I could go down a wormhole right here. But, well, let's just talk about the Bible for a second. Certainly the Bible would say that there's intergenerational trauma, right? I do. It's pretty clear, right? That things pass down generation unto generation, right?
2: Well, um, sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, right?
1: Yes, yes, right? And and I do think that uh, you mentioned Carl Jung earlier. and I'm a great fan of Carl Jung and, uh, and of, you know, one of his I don't know, a contemporary author who does, I think, a beautiful job of making Young accessible to people, be James Hollis. And it it seems to me, Young would have said, oh, absolutely, intergenerational like, like things pass on to us, right? And we, so there is, as you said, a great deal of wisdom and insight to be found when we look into previous generations and our genealogies and, you know, um, that may help us understand who we are because of who they were Mm -hmm. you know and i i i can you know i think about my own family you know um uh, my father was an alcoholic and an addict his two sisters were alcoholics who died from alcoholism uh i'm in recovery for uh substance abuse, I you know, substance use disorder. I can just go on and on and on. Now you could say, well, that's just a genetic predisposition. That hasn't been proven, but let's just say it is. Mm -hmm. But I just think also it's just intergenerational trauma. I, I just think that stuff once a ball gets rolling somewhere, uh it can begin to pick up momentum. And part of our job, I think as human beings is learning how to reverse the momentum of some of this trauma in, in our lives so that we don't continue to, to, to pass it forward on, on to others.
0: I was doing some, um, research with my family and I, when we were, when we, when we were pregnant with our first son, this is 21 years ago and I was looking for names. So I was going back and I found my great grandfather five times removed and I found where he was buried. And, I had just come out of a seven year stint of working in the inner city. uh, And I, and I'm a musician, a songwriter. So those were the two parts of my life working in the inner city um, with the underprivileged and, and music. And I found where he was buried. I found his headstone and he had this huge headstone and the top of the headstone had one hand giving to another. And it said a friend to the poor and underneath his death, date it said dying he sang, amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and i'm sitting here looking at this tombstone with a grandfather five times removed and these two huge pieces of my life that mark my life and i realized i'm walking in an inheritance you know it was just it really bowled me over and we ended up naming our son uh after him well you have to say you have to tell maud your son's name so uh my grandfather's name was John William, and so we named our son John William Justice Skinner. So, oh
2: I, I love it. I, I mean I love it. Yeah.
0: And the the justice was all about because I just spent the last seven years, you know, working in the inner city. So that's that's he's named after that season. Um so John William Justice Skinner, yeah. So
1: can you just give us a word of wisdom and encouragement or instruction for our listeners around um, looking into their histories to understand their present reality?
2: Mm. Yeah, I would just say, you know, one legacy I've carried forward of my you know, very evangelical Christian childhood is the idea that the truth will set you free. Hmm. Uh, and I really, I believe that to be the case, you know, a lot of painful stuff can come up, a lot of joyful stuff can come up, the kinds of amazing recurrences that Anthony was talking about. And, you know, but being willing to look at all of it um, and really you know, understand and feel our way into all of us, all of it can can help us show up so much better
1: mm. in the world. Mm. Well, Maud, thank you so much, everybody. Maud Newton, Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and a Reconciliation that dropped on March 29th of 2022. So I wanna encourage all of you to go out and get this remarkable, remarkable book. Maude, can we have you back on? This was too good to just be a one mm-hmm. one off conversation.
2: I, I mean, anytime, you know, um, because I'm I'm such a fan. Yeah, I
0: can, oh, I can tell you, you that. I can tell you that. Quit melling about is going down in typology <laughs> history. <laughs> I had to bring that back up.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: I mean, oh, we we really. Even if you haven't had that said to you, I know you know what it feels like when somebody's like, just stop.
1: Well, Typology listeners from King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, hear the words, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, may you have rest. Until next time.